Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, summer is just around the corner and it's time to think about our gardens, especially those folks that are doing vegetable gardens. So today we're planting the seed about sustainable farming and learning some tips on how to navigate the unique environment of Newfoundland and Labrador for growing veggies. Joining us is Nathan Genge, a founder of Kingfisher Farms in Gambo. Now, Nathan and Kingfisher Farms are the real deal. They're all about redefining farming as we know it here in the province. Nathan calls himself a soil farmer who grows vegetables. And we'll hear about some of the challenges that we have about soil and navigating growing vegetables here in the province. Now, their organic produce and vibrant flowers and seasonal goodies are not only good for the planet, but they also help feed their community. So let's dig deep into the nitty gritty of sustainable farming and learn how to get the most out of our gardens this summer. Nathan shares some helpful tips and tricks on getting rid of pests, improving our soil, and when and what we should do when we're planting our favorite vegetables. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started, Nathan can help us level up our gardening game. Now let's get to our interview with Nathan Genge of Kingfisher Farms. Hey Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's good to have you back, second time around, and it's an important topic because people are starting to think about whether they should plant a garden this year, and you're the expert at that. Can you tell our folks uh, a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Nathan Gidge. I'm the owner and operator of Kingfisher Farm in Gambo, central Newfoundland. We are a permaculture sustainable based farming operation. We're very small. That's on purpose. So we can pay attention to all the details and try to watch what nature does as well as we can. Yeah, we've been doing this. This is four years and every year it's getting better and loving it more every day. Oh, that's awesome. You have a great little outfit going on there. I got to say, I'm looking forward to coming up for a visit myself this summer. And and one of the things I'm going to be getting into, and I know a lot of people are listening, are going to be thinking about this year is starting to grow their own vegetable garden. Now, Newfoundland is a bit of a challenging environment in certain ways for a lot of rookie gardeners, at least. And you're in Central. It's a little warmer there than it is in the Avalon. When's the ideal time to start planting vegetables here in Newfoundland Labrador? It all depends on what you're wanting to grow for the most part. I mean, this time of year is a great time if you want to get onion sets in, spinach, uh, any of those cool weather crops. There are a lot of greens that we grow that really like the cool weather. Most brassicas actually, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, they actually enjoy the cooler weather too. So it's a great time of year if you want to set those out. For warmer weather plants, and I, I'll go with the ones that I've seen traditionally grown in Newfoundland in greenhouses, the tomatoes, the peppers, those types of things, they would have needed really to be in about eight weeks ago if you wanted to start them on your own. Now, you can certainly go and pick them up from a, a local nursery or greenhouse and they'll do fine. But for those longer season crops, you usually need to start them six to 10 weeks before our last frost date, which in, in central is May 31st, give or take a week. So it really depends. It's a great time of year to be putting out snap peas. Our snap peas are up through the ground. They like cooler weather. There are a lot of things that can be planted this time of year. I know a lot of people are putting in their potatoes now. Traditionally for us, we don't do a lot of potatoes and I don't put any potatoes in the ground until June 1st, just to make sure that we don't get too much precipitation and they rot in the ground or anything like that. But carrots, you can do carrots this time of year. There's lots of great stuff that can be planted and grown in the province for sure. And I think that's something that people may not understand is that we do have an ability here to have some sustainable crops, at least for their growing season and be able to store them like we did in root cellars back in the day. If somebody's thinking about starting their own little garden, 
how big does it have to be? How small? What are the things they should think about when they're when they're looking at starting to grow some vegetables? I think the first thing you need to think about is what exactly you want out of your garden. You can feed a family of four in a very small space. We feed a tremendous number of people and we donate a tremendous amount of food from about a quarter of an acre that we use as our, I'll call them traditional growing beds. So for a family of four, if you had a, a small plot that was, I'll give you a hundred square feet, roughly the 10 by 10 work or four 25 foot beds, that kind of thing. Um, you could grow a lot of food. But again, you have to think about what do I want out of it? Do I want salads out of it? Do I want my long season storage vegetables out of it? Because different vegetables take up different space and have different needs. You don't want to be planting a full bed of lettuce where it's going to get full sun in the middle of summer because your lettuce is just going to bolt and you're going to end up with very bitter, unsavory lettuce, not something you want. So you have to think about what you want. Uh, once you've decided what you want and you want to think about your location, full sun is usually best for most vegetables, unless you're looking at greens, lettuces, spinach. They don't like a lot of hot weather. You'd have to provide them with some shade if they're in full sun. The tomatoes, the peppers, the carrots, the turnips, potatoes, they like full sun and rich soil. One of the biggest challenges I think we have in Newfoundland is our soil it's tremendously acidic it, it does have some benefits it grows blueberries better than almost anywhere else in the country which is a huge benefit and there are other things like rhubarb that enjoy our soil but at the same time you have to think about if i'm growing vegetables you're usually going to have to do some amending to get the soil to a point where most vegetables will do well we do that organically and we do it with all native amendments. And I should interject just for a second and, and put in, it's always a good idea to get your soil checked to see exactly where it is. You don't want to be adding things if you've already got an, an excess of that in the soil. Everybody always thinks, okay, the more I have in the soil, the better it is. Not necessarily, and I, and I will tell you this story from experience. I've planted cauliflower in soil that had too much nitrogen in it, and I got big, beautiful green plants with no cauliflower heads whatsoever. They were just huge green leaves because there was too much nitrogen, not enough potassium and phosphorus. So I always suggest to people to get their soil tested and they can do that through the Department of Agriculture. I think there's a small fee involved or you can do it yourself. You can pick up a kit set, Canadian Tire, Walmart. They'll give you the, I'll call it the basics of what's in your soil. And it's always a good idea to put a little bit of compost in there and that kind of thing to help the organic matter and, and the life that's in the soil. But really, figure out what you want, where you're going to put it, make sure your soil's okay, and then just keep it fed. Plants want to grow. We just have to not get in the way of them growing. Yeah. That's really what it boils down to. I can see that. I can see that. And, you know, so I, I, the soil definitely is something I've heard a lot about in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. When somebody gets, gets it analyzed, you mentioned a few things that they can use. Is it a big expensive process to bring your soil up or is it something that takes time over the, over the course of your garden for over like several seasons? So it depends how you do it. I've heard a lot of people say there are no quick fixes in gardening and, and they're right in a lot of ways. There are ways that are quicker than others. Synthetic fertilizers, obviously, you can put them on your ground and very quickly the nutrients are available to your plants. And I think it's kind of at the crux of what you and I have been talking about, sustainability of that. 
with the shortage of phosphorus in the world and all that kind of thing. If you're doing it organically, like we do us, it takes time. And there is no substitute for letting nature do its thing on its own and just kind of helping along in the process. So when someone buys a bag of fertilizer, there's three numbers on the front of it, like 10, 10, 10. Well, those numbers stand for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So those are the three macronutrients, the big ones, the plants need. So if I want to elevate that in my soil organically, there's a few ways I can do it. So if I want to take care of the nitrogen, nettle is a great sting needles in Newfoundland, we call it sting nettle, are excellent bioaccumulators and very high in nitrogen. So if I chop some stinging nettle and I put it in my ground and I let that rot and decay and degrade over the course of about six months, I'm going to increase the nitrogen in my soil. Now I would do that in the fall so that over winter, when I go to plant in the spring, there's an abundance of nitrogen in the soil. There are other plants that are great for nitrogen. Uh, Dandelion is another great plant that you can add to the soil. And I, I spoke to you that we were going dandelion hunting today. That's for a number of reasons. Dandelion's a great food source. It's a great green. We make dandelion syrup, which tastes like honey, which is delicious. And the other thing that I do with dandelion is you can brew what are called compost teas out of dandelion. So I'll take the leaves and roots, chop them up, put them in a bucket, put an air pump with an aerator in it. I'll leave that for 24 hours. The water that comes out of that, plants absolutely love it. And it is a great, great starter for seedlings because it's high in phosphorus and potassium. So phosphorus is what's underground in your roots. Potassium helps in flowering and fruit production at the end of the season. And if I'm looking at phosphorus, phosphorus is the hardest one. Potassium you can get from banana peels, dandelion. There's a whole bunch of things you can get potassium from to put in your soil that degrades relatively quickly. Phosphorus is the hard one. Phosphorus usually comes from rock dust. People put bone meal in their soil as an amendment for phosphorus, which is what we use a lot of because it's an organic amendment. But phosphorus takes longer to break down. But the thing about phosphorus that people seem to not talk about is that just about every type of soil on earth has enough phosphorus in it to grow plants already. It's just not available because the organisms in the soil are not there to break it down and make it available to plants. So my job as an organic farmer is to create the conditions so that those bacteria and microorganisms can thrive and then take the phosphorus that's in the soil and make it available to my plants. It takes time. You're fostering an entire ecosystem underground. Mm-hmm. So yes, it takes time. There are quicker ways, but we find that if you want to do it sustainably, it works in the long term. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I should put in real quick is that we're a no-till farm, so we don't disturb the soil. We don't till. Nothing is turned over. Compost is not turned into the land. Everything is put on top. Rainwater carries the nutrients down, and it, we just build, we layer like lasagna almost, mm. up and up and up. And the reason we do that is because a very important component of soil life are the fungal strands and the fungal hyphae, the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. That's what we know as fungus, but the fungal strands that are in the soil, when we till, you destroy those. They're so important to plant life. So we just leave them alone and it takes time. You're not going to go from very poor soil to a really good soil in 
one year, two years, three years, it's going to take time. But once you get there, all you have to do then is maintain that balance and you are, you're set. I'm thinking about the types of ways people plant. Sometimes people plant with raised beds. Sometimes they plant in the ground like you. You know, what's the difference? What's the pros and cons of each? So that's an, actually a very interesting question uh, because we actually do both. We do in the ground planting and we do raised bed planting. There are huge pros and cons to each. Planting in the ground is convenient. It's easy. It's quick. All you have to do is turn over the land, plant, you're good to go. The other thing about planting in the ground that's not talked about a whole lot yet is that if you plant in the ground, the soil stays cooler and wetter. Now, that is usually not an issue in Newfoundland and Labrador, but for anyone who's been paying attention, our climate is changing and changing very quickly. I know our last summer here was hot and it was dry. Yep. So having plants in the ground, especially our greens, kept them cooler and kept them wetter at the root level, which did them a whole world of good. Usually a raised bed in Newfoundland would be a better idea because the soil is warmer, it drains better, and we can control what's in it, which is the, for me, it's the biggest pro of raised bed. I can control exactly what's in the bed. I don't have any leaching going on and all that kind of stuff. Boss, you have to look at your summer. So with our summers getting hotter and hotter all the time and drier and drier, well, now I have to use more water in my irrigation systems to keep my raised beds as saturated as they need to be. And I will go through about 3,000 liters of water to water our garden if I'm doing a good saturation. Now, we're fortunate in Gambo because we have natural springs everywhere. So we're very, very lucky. Not everyone has that available to them, and I realize that. And we use soaker hoses, which saves a lot of water. We don't do overhead watering because you get a lot of it run away. We do so, so it's a slow water. It saves about 70% water, but I'm still going through a lot, a lot, a lot. Wow. So you have to kind of be cognizant of what's the weather trend in my area doing, and is it better for me to dig into ground and maintain that moisture and that coolness? And I had to think about what I want to grow. If I'm growing brassicas, cool season crops, and that kind of thing, well, digging in the ground is probably my best option. On the other hand, if I want to grow hot peppers, jalapeno peppers, and I'm looking at my greenhouse here and I'm full of tomatoes and hot peppers and that kind of stuff, raised beds are probably your way to go. It's warmer soil. And the thing, especially, we do cantaloupes and watermelon. If you're growing melons, do it in a raised bed because they like it hot. And the other thing I should mention, the raised bed is more work than planting in the ground in terms of just getting the soil ready. Yeah. You have to move the soil on the stack. So there is that little bit of labor up front that comes with that. There are definitely pros and cons to each, but I think the important thing is that people look at their own situation and think about what's going to work best for me and allow me to grow the food that I want to grow. Because at the end of the day, whatever works best for the individual and in growing food, that's the best answer. Well, that's right. And you know, it's it's interesting because it does take a real education to be able to start to do this process, but maybe you can put some minds at ease. Like once people start to understand it and then they get into it and they start their first season, the growing season, and they make mistakes and they have some successes, how long does it take before somebody can become at least adequate at being able to grow their vegetables? Um, 
Someone said to me once, it takes five years to hit your stride. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that. And I, I think it's not necessarily after five years, you're going to have everything figured out. Nor do I think you're not going to have things figured out until you're five years in. I think the process of getting to a point where you're comfortable and confident, and those are the two big things. Because the first year that I put things in the ground, it was the confidence or lack thereof, I think, that inhibited a lot of what I was doing. Because I babied plants too much. I tried to make everything just right and perfect. Like I said before, plants want to grow. We just have to kind of give them what they need and get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So five years gives you a chance to get the cold feet and tentativeness out of your system in terms of, listen, if I put a put an onion in the ground, probably going to grow unless I mess up. You get that out of the way, then you get, okay, well, how often do I need to water? Which is a question I get a tremendous amount. How often do I need to water tomatoes? How often do I need to water turn? And the, the answer to that is it differs depending, depending on the vegetable and depending on your climate. So there's no hard and fast answer to that, but getting to know your climate, getting to know the vegetables you're growing, getting to know your soil. And we are a huge proponent of, I mean, I consider myself a soil farmer who grows vegetables and fruit as a side gig kind of thing. And that's what I'm all about is getting to know the soil, what's in the soil. I spend hours looking through a microscope, figuring out what's in the soil and what needs to be added so that a certain type of bacteria or a certain type of organism and thrive, that kind of thing. But you don't need to be looking through a microscope to figure that out. You will know that when you see carrots that are growing well or your cabbage that has a big head of cabbage on it and stuff like this. It takes time. Five years, I think, is an accurate snapshot of how long it takes to get that confidence and be comfortable going off and pulling things out of the garden, not knowing whether or not it's a planter or a, a, a air quotes, quotation, a weed. Yeah. I could talk about weeds for a long time. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's getting to know your garden and yourself really is a big part of this. And yeah, five, four or five years, I would, I would say, and you'd be confident enough you'd go out and throw just about anything in the ground and get it to grow. That's pretty good. I mean, that's not that long when you think about how short a growing season is and that, you know, you're actually growing food for yourself and you're developing this infrastructure in your backyard or wherever you decide to to do this. Now, you right now are in your greenhouse for anybody listening here at home. Not everybody's going to have a greenhouse, but there are ways that we can start some of those plants, especially if we've got a small little Harvey garden in the back of our house. Is there a way to be able to start some of those inside without having to have the big infrastructure? Oh my God, yes, absolutely. If you have a south-facing window in your house, you can start plants. And for some plants, you don't even need a south-facing window if you have something that's pointed east, you're okay. When we started, we bought some grow lights at, I think it was Canadian Tire. They went on sale and we bought a few. You don't need anything fancy. You don't need heat mats. You don't need, I've seen these, um, these machines that are sold that you plant the seeds and they do everything for you. They'll build a whole little herb garden for you. You can do that without paying $200. That's not necessary. You don't need to do that. All you need is some pots, some soil, water, a window, and you can start things. I wouldn't recommend starting 200 tomato plants if you don't have space to put them because eventually those tomato plants are going to go into four-inch pots and they're going to go into six-inch pots. 
yeah. uh, before they go underground if you're starting them early enough. So they take up space. But if, if you have a window, you can start some food very early in the season for sure. That's good to know. And, you know, so they're, they, you start these plants inside, they're starting to grow, and then we take them outside. And I think one of the questions people would have would be, what about pests? We've got slugs, different pests are out there. Maybe you can run us through some of the common ones and ways that we can mitigate them without maybe throwing lots of chemicals on our gardens. Sure. So the pest situation, the coexistence of us and pests is an ongoing, I won't call it the war on pests because it's not that. But <laughs> the cohabitation between us and pests is an ongoing thing. The first thing you can do is have a healthy garden. That is the absolute most important, best thing you can do is to have a diversified, healthy garden. The more diversification you have in your garden, the less pests you are going to have, period, full stop, end of sentence. Simply because you are going to have predatory insects move in that prey on what we traditionally call pests. So if you have aphids in your garden that are wreaking havoc on your pepper plants, you need to plant some calendula or some hollyhock or any kind of flower. They attract ladybugs. Ladybugs are natural predators of aphids. Bring in the ladybugs and they will take care of 90% of your aphids. The other thing you can do, diatomaceous earth is another great tool in organic gardening to use against pests. It's basically pulverized uh, seashells, coral, that kind of stuff, like little tiny razor blades to pests. They just won't crawl over to go near it because it's too sharp for them. I've heard eggshells before. Is that also one? Yeah, eggshells egg will work. You need a lot of eggshells to do it if you're doing any kind of size of a garden. The other beautiful part about eggshells is that they're high in calcium. So if you break them up enough, it adds calcium to your garden. Just don't add too many because calcium is a is a large molecule and it can eat up some space in the nutrient battle that's going on underground. So just beware. Don't flood your garden with eggshells. But the other thing that we found, and I always get a laugh out of this whenever I say it, is beer. We make beer traps and all they are little yogurt containers or just a small container. You fill them half full of beer, whatever your preference is, sink it in the ground and the slugs will go to the ass like crazy. They just fill up with slugs. So the slugs won't touch your plants. They'll go to the beer. The only thing I would recommend or caution, and this is a lesson learned from experience, Put something over the top as a roof or your little yogurt containers are going to fill up with water and, and they're just not going to work. So you want to keep the water out of them. Maybe one of those little cocktail umbrellas. Now you're talking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I'm sure the slugs would enjoy that. There are a bunch of things you, you can do. Our biggest nemesis in the garden are cutworms. Slugs we can take care of with the beer. It works really well. Aphids, we don't have an issue with because we interplant with flowers, uh, which usually takes care of them. If that doesn't, we use diatomaceous earth, like I said. But cutworms, cutworms are the hardest. The moth that lays the egg lays it in the fall and usually lays it under dead debris of plants. Well, our problem is because we're an organic farm and we mulch everything, we have a tremendous amount of plant matter on top of all our beds all the time. So it's an ideal habitat for them. So they lay in the fall, they hatch in the spring, 
And what a cutworm will do, if you ever go into your garden and all you see is the stump of a stem left, it looks like it's been cut clean off, mm. probably the work of the cutworm. They wrap themselves around the stem of the plant, just cut it right off. And they don't eat the plant, they just cut it off. And they are difficult to deal with. There are ways of dealing with them. You can delay planting in the spring and not give them the food they need to grow. Of course, for us, that's not an option because we run a community-supported agriculture system. So we have to have food ready to, to, to deliver to our members throughout the year, uh, early in the year. The other thing you can do is you can till. Disturbing the young larvae will usually get rid of them. Birds will come in and eat them if they're on top of the ground, that kind of thing. Again, for us, we're no-till, so we can't do that. Yeah. So what, what we end up doing is basically a, a reactive approach to cutworms. We can't put anything on top of the soil that's going to deter them. So if I see a plant cut off, I will basically dig around that plant about two inches and about an inch down, and I'm almost guaranteed I will find that cutworm. Oh, yeah. I'll just pull it out and give it the old capital punishment for what it did. So if I'm planting, I'll do that with lettuce plants because those are quicker and I can grow them quicker. If I'm planting squash, squash takes a long time. If I'm growing pumpkins or if I'm growing zucchini or anything like that, and I want to make sure that those plants don't get cut off because I can't regrow that quickly. You can put something around the stem of it. When it's really small, you can use a straw. So you cut off about a four-inch length of straw, go two inches down in the ground, and leave two inches above ground. So what, what we do... We slit the straw down the side, right. cut off a four-inch length, and then wrap it around the stem of the plant. Hmm. Two inches in, two inches up. Cutworms cut off the plant right at the soil level. And if it can't get at the stem, it won't bother the plant. Cool. Once the stems are so big that the cutworm can't wrap its whole body right around it to kill the plant. Mm -hmm. So if you wrap something around the stem at the base, about two inches down, two inches up, That'll make sure the cutworms can't get at your plants. Now, that's a tedious process when you're putting yeah. 100 squash plants. Yeah. Boss, uh, we've really found no better method to do it because we don't use chemicals. We don't spray or anything like that. So sometimes it is, well, what's the lesser of two evils? I'm willing to sacrifice a lettuce plant, and I'm not going to do that with all my lettuce seedlings because it takes too long. But for the 100 squash plants I have in, yeah, I'll take the time and put straws around them or whatever I need to put around the stem to stop them. Hmm. No, that's really interesting. Are there any native species to Newfoundland and Labrador that really thrive here? You you can talk about our textbook weeds here because I know a lot of those are really, really great eating here as well. So is there any species that are inherent to here that really do well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if you look at all our native berries, which are something that's not talked about nearly enough. The abundance of berries in our province, blueberries, partridge berries, raspberries, is is absolutely amazing. And I I sometimes laugh. I go to a, a big box store and I'll see raspberry plants for sale. And I'll think to myself, why in the world would I buy a raspberry plant when they grow so well in Newfoundland, just all on their own? If I want raspberry plants on my own property, all I have to do is go and dig up a cane, put it in my garden. And in about three years time, I'm going to have a raspberry patch. So uh, the berries do really well in this province. And you mentioned native plants in the province that people really overlook because they don't look at them as food. They look at them as either weed or something they've never considered to be food. 
Um, I know fiddleheads on the West Coast are great. They're like asparagus. They're delicious. They're chanterelle mushrooms that grow in this province. I mentioned dandelions earlier. Dandelions are one of the greatest sources for health on the planet. My favorite warm beverage is roasted dandelion root with a dollop of fresh honey in it. Oh, that is some good stuff, and it is really, really good for you. We have wild leeks and wild onions that grow in this province. A lot of people call them chives for wild onions. They, they're delicious, and they're really good for you. This province has so many things that it, the possibilities are there. A big part of it is if I go to the grocery store, I see vegetables and then I automatically associate with that as being the vegetables that I should be growing or that I should be looking to eat or provide to my family. It's all about education, understanding that there are foods here that are absolutely delicious, very nutritious. We just kind of have to get past the whole, well, I don't see it in the grocery store, so that means I probably can't eat it. Not entirely true at all. So. Yeah, I think getting past that is it's a huge piece for for Newfoundland moving forward because we do have some wonderful things to grow here that are really great. Yeah, two of my good friends, Lawyer McCarthy and Sean Dawson, both foragers here on the, the Avalon and taking me out and pick some amazing things. I remember I had wild hops one time, so good. Fried them up with some butter at the campfire. It was amazing. And so there are some really interesting different foods that you might not try, but are readily available if you know where to find them, of course, and you're safe and how you harvest them. But a lot of people might not be able to or have the time or even the physical capacity to be able to do a garden or farm for themselves, but they still want to benefit from healthy foods because that's a huge aspect of what you do. Can you tell the folks a little bit about the program you offer, the people in your community? Oh, sure. We do what's called a CSA, a Community Supported Agricultural Program. And how that works is that at the beginning of the year, in January, February, uh, we have people who sign up for the program. And what that means when they sign up is that from June until October, every week they get a big basket of fresh fruits, vegetables, foraged food that was in season. So we don't put, I'll say, cabbage in our baskets in early June because they're not in season. We can force that and do it in a greenhouse, but it's not the natural peak of the season for it. So people are getting what's in season at its peak nutritional value because that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to grow nutritional food for people and different foods. So we do things like eggplant. We do a lot of Chinese and Asian greens. We do melons, a lot of hot peppers, just different food. And someone said to me once, well, you know, don't be different just for the sake of being different. Well, we kind of are different for the sake of being different because we want people to be exposed. It's been very positively received. So for those months, every week, our members get a a big basket of fresh fruit and vegetables and forage goods, and they get to come through the farm. They also get first dibs at anything we have left over, yeah. which is good and bad because we usually don't have a whole lot left over to sell to anyone else. It's really fun. It's great for the farm. I mean, I'll be honest with you, it works really well for our farm because then the funds are available on the farm when we need the funds in terms of the infrastructure up front seeds, all that kind of thing. And it really builds a sense of community. People feel like they have ownership in which they do. They have ownership in the farm. So they come to the farm, they can see their food being grown. They know what's going into it. And they know that 
whatever they're getting in that basket was picked that morning. It's a win-win. I love that. And I think that on the health side of things, you want to talk specifics about nutrition per se, but you probably have lots of stories of people that for the first time are having ample fresh vegetables. What are some of the things that people say when they get access to food like this? i tell you a short story. We donate quite a bit of food to the local family resource center that's here. And it's very satisfying when you know that food is going to people who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. And know that that's definitely the first bit of fresh food that they've gotten in a while. Uh, and we've had, I've had comments made to me about that out in the community about how it was appreciated and all this kind of stuff. And it not necessarily from the person that got it, but it might be from their cousin or friend or whoever, that kind of thing. First of all, it's very, it's very interesting to hear people talk about taste. Mm-hmm. We had one lady once who said, I've never tasted a tomato until I ate for tomatoes. I didn't really know how they tasted. We do these little cherry tomatoes and we do a whole bunch of tomatoes, but one specifically that's very, very sweet. And she came here and we walked up to the garden, walked around and all that kind of stuff. And I asked her if she wanted a tomato and she ate it. And it's almost like her, it's almost like she came to a realization of what is this? Why have I not been eating tomatoes that taste like this? It's that realization that local food, fresh food, tastes so much different than things that have been shipped here for two weeks and brought from wherever. It's been a huge thing. The other the other big thing we've found is that our members who have families will say that their kids will sit down and eat our string beans like candy or the snap peas. They'll just go through them so there's never any left. They'll put snap peas down in front of them and eat them and eat them until they're all gone. Even my kid, I have a four-year-old who will not, will not touch a carrot out of the grocery store. He'll get it. <laughs> yeah. But go up into the garden and he'll eat his body weight in them, and he'll pick peas off the vine and eat them, and he'll even he <laughs> the tops off of, we do Egyptian walking onion, mm-hmm. takes the tops off of those and eats them raw. So it's very rewarding to see that there's such a difference in the taste that even kids notice us and, and, and almost look at it as being a different food. So I think the biggest thing for us, for our members, is knowing that we're providing that because it's an experience to me. It's the experience of cooking with fresh fruit or eating fresh food, knowing that it was grown in Newfoundland, and then having the reaction come back and say, I didn't know that eggplant could grow in this province or taste this way. It's a big thing, and it's it's possible in this province if we do things the right way. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, actually, is do you think that what you're doing is a a model or are you hoping to inspire other communities to follow suit or do you hope to be leading new initiatives? Like, where do you see this going and what do you think the potential is in our province? I think the potential in the province is huge. I think we have to get past the idea that the only thing we can grow in this province are potato, turnip, carrot, and cabbage. Not that there's anything wrong with that at all. Those are excellent vegetables. But the idea that we can only grow root vegetables is an absolute myth to me. I've often said I would love to be put out of business because people are growing their own food and they no longer need us, which would be, that would be great. I, that, would, that would be my dream, to be put out of business by people around me growing their own food. I, I really hope we can inspire people to do what we're doing. And I really hope that how we're doing things will become I won't say the norm because I think that's too uh, idealistic, but 
at least more widespread and more common. The importance of moving towards a sustainable model is huge. We rely on the transportation industry bringing in basically everything. Yeah. So if we are relying on them to bring in fertilizers and and the only way we know how to grow things is with fertilizers or have our food delivered to us, that doesn't bode well for the province in the long term in terms yeah. of sustainability. Yeah. So learning how to work with what we have in this province is key in moving forward. Farming in Newfoundland is different than farming anywhere else in the world. And we have to have the confidence in ourselves to accept that we have to farm differently and do it in a way that works for our province. Yeah. We have what we need in this province to grow amazing food. We really do. We're doing it on a very small scale, but it can be done on a much bigger scale given the right circumstances and the right push. We need to realize that it's different here our climate is different. Our situation is different. So we have to do things differently. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I mean, for anybody that's listening, that's inspired by what you're saying and might want some more information, how can they find you and Kingfisher Farms online? Uh, they can go to kingfisherfarm.com or they can email us at kingfisherfarmnl at gmail.com. We're on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and all those good ones. Yeah, we're out there. Just type our name into a search bar and we'll pop up. That's excellent. Well, listen, I really appreciate you joining us again this year and giving us advice. You're a wealth of knowledge on this stuff. I learn something every single time. So I'm two years in, which means I'll maybe three more years I'll be half confident. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it this summer and see how I make out. But I might be leaning on you for a bit of help. I hope that's okay. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Nathan for joining me today. Throughout the episode, we discovered that Kingfisher Farms isn't just an ordinary farm. Nathan and his amazing team are revolutionizing the way we think about farming by embracing sustainability and creating a haven for organic produce, vibrant flowers, and seasonal delights. Their commitment to the environment and the community is really inspiring. Now, Nathan shared some great insights and tips for all those aspiring gardeners out there and hopefully it may have inspired you to start a little garden yourself. We learned how to improve our gardens slowly over time from prepping the soil to selecting the right plants and employing sustainable practices that nourish both our bodies and the planet. And one of the biggest takeaways from this episode is the power of sustainable living. Kingfisher Farm serves as a fantastic example of how sustainable farming can positively impact our lives and the environment. By supporting local and organic agriculture, we not only get to enjoy fresh, delicious food, but we also contribute to a healthier and more sustainable future, especially here in Newfoundland and Labrador, where we may need to focus a little bit more on agriculture, no matter how small the operation. So whether you're an experienced gardener or just starting on your green journey, remember all the lessons you learned today. Embrace sustainability, nurture your gardens, and make a positive impact in the world around you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.